0: Danny Glover. Calling Danny Glover, mobile. Uh, all right. How you doing? How are you, sir? All right, brother. Is this time still good for you? Yeah, it's good. I was really excited to tell my mom that Danny Glover was coming on the show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it was so fun to meet you last month when you were up here. And I'd love to talk about the movies and the, the entertainment industry as well, but I'd love to start with your passion around this work in the education space. Can you tell people what that's about? When we talk about working in the education space, it's something that I've always been a part
1: of. I've come out of when I call a very extraordinary moment in this country's history, the post-civil rights movement. I had an opportunity to work in city government, specifically the Model Cities Program and the Office of Community Development for six and a half years. So there's another way in which I think, in part, I'm been able to calibrate my engagement as a citizen, and not only an artist, but as a citizen through my past experiences. When I worked in city government, I worked in two communities, excuse me, two communities in San Francisco. The mission, which is primarily, at that time, primarily Hispanic, and the southeast part of San Francisco, the baby on this point, which was an African-American community. What I've learned and appreciated over a period of time, even when I was a student and attending community meetings, was just the boundless creativity of ordinary citizens in terms of to working out issues around their life, the attention and detail they paid to institutions like education, housing, and the level of civic engagement of just common citizens as an ordinary citizen. So I think that was one of the one things that I appreciated. So my background has then me provided for a certain place where I've become become involved in issues around education, whether it's issues around mass incarceration, whether it's, it's issues around community development in all aspects of community development. So I'm asked to do things, I'm asked to be places, and asked to be involved in certain situations, vis a vis community action and citizen action. I've been fortunate enough to be asked and to accept a great deal. So education is one platform in that.
0: That's great. What have been some of the successes you've been most proud of over there? Well, I think over a period
1: of time, the kind of work that I've been doing, particularly for the last 20 years with the algebra project and work with, I think people who fit minds in some sense, the role that citizenship And civic engagement play in making and attempts in in our attempts to make fundamental changes. If we look at the educational system, and and certainly I come up through the public school system in San Francisco, public education, we see certain things that are troubling about that. One, the lack of resources, as always, those budgetary concerns fall on not only the city but the county and the state with some federal money coming from various legislative action like Title I and other forms of No Child Left Behind in terms of testing, etc. But when you think about the kind of shift in the privatization of all aspects of the public space, and particularly in education, we see a very, very troubling moment, a very, a potentially very troubling moment in terms of children's access, future children's access to public education, foundational education as a constitutional right. Let me explain that in some sense. The Constitution has no, nothing out in its outline that says out of its amendments that children are entitled to a foundational education, quality foundational education. And the necessity of that to for children to become full participating citizens in a democracy. Alexis de Tocqueville, the great philosopher and writer in the eighteenth century, n of the nineteenth century, talked about the experiment of democracy and says that it, it is an extraordinary adventure or and I'm paraphrasing, an extraordinary process, but it, it only functions with the facts if we have citizens who are capable are informed. In order to become informed, you need to have education as a ground, as the foundation for that, for that happening. So I think on the one hand, work that I've been doing with the Power Algebra Project the last 20 years, which says now in the 21st century education, maybe 20th century education was the right to vote 21st century education, as Bob Moses, the founder of the Algebra Projects Expresses, is to be able to work and be versed in algebra or versed in math, because the jobs that we talk about, uh, technical jobs that we talk, information-age jobs, require a knowledge of math, specifically algebra. So if our kids are not prepared to take on math, responsibility, what happens is that they're not fully embedded citizens, a fully engaged citizen. And so a great deal of that, the success of that conversation, we we had a congressional hearing last year, 2019, where we would brought the the subcommittee on education, which was the Democratic Party and majority in the Congress, and the subcommittee on education, under Bobby Scott, Democrat out of Richmond, Virginia. We had that and a conversation about that. That's a growing conversation among educators around the country. The legislative victory that occurred in the Sixth District Court in the end of April provided a platform to establish foundational education as a civil right. Sixth District included four states. Michigan was one of the states. And so the community complaint out of Detroit set the groundwork for this decision. Even though that decision was vacated about two months later, two or three months later, the award from the state itself provided the platform to, to begin to have that discussion and to begin to have greater civic engagement in education as a foundational right as a constitutional right, with what we call quality education or QECR as, as a constitutional right, quality education, as a right, or foundational education. We're talking about the same thing. Those are the kind of things when I think about working. I spent a lot of time over the last quarter, more than a quarter century, nearly 30 years, spending time on college campuses, talking to kids, visiting, and supporting initiatives around teachers and teachers to counter the deep professionalization of what's happening with teaching. All those things are on my plate and all the things that I think about. I have a sister who was a teacher. I have three nephews and a, a niece that work in education. So plus my mother was trained as a teacher. So those are some of the things with visa visa education.
0: Yeah, you know, I don't know if you remember meeting my wife that evening when we were sitting down together, but she grew up in a, in a t- real tough part of of Southern California, and I look at how different her life is compared to her mom. You know, her mom had been, there had been a lot of abuse and a lot of other things going on. And she ended up living on the streets in Santa Monica as like a 13 year old and, you know, dropped out of the eighth grade and, and didn't go on from there. And you look at how hard she worked with her kids. And my wife was the first one to go to university. And she's got a brother who's a dentist and a different brother who's a business owner. And the the youngest daughter ended up becoming happily married and ended up with this kind of American dream family. But it's so different than what she grew up with and had been in their family line. And like my wife talks about growing up feeling like the only people she had ever met who had gone to college were her school teachers. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't really like, you know, It, it kind of seemed like make-believe. And so when we lived in Huntington Beach and she was working at a youth shelter in there that had a lot of kids from Watts and Compton and, and some real tough areas, she would take them on these university tours And say, hey, this stuff also used to seem pretend to me as well, but you guys can do this. And kids would just laugh at her like, no, we're not going to college. Nobody in our neighborhood goes to college. And yet they do sometimes and everything changes so much. And so I guess it feels really personal to me when you talk about that, because I can see what a difference it had in our family. You know what I mean? Well, it takes my mother. My mother.
1: When always, part of my, my kind of like the moral underpinning when her mother, my mother, expressed her gratitude for her mother and father, we never went past the third grade. My parents were, share, my grandparents were sharecroppers. They born born of a system where they received, quote unquote, sharecropper education. That means that simply was that they never went to school. Most kids never went to school until the cotton was picked. Or whatever was paid through September until that was paid, they they didn't attend school. They did the work because they needed all hands on board to make sure that those crops I in, mean, whether it's cotton or whatever the crops are that they're growing, and they're working those fields. I mean, they needed all hands to be on board in order to sustain the family. Mm-hmm. So all the children. So my mother would always say that I'm eternally grateful for my mother and father because I didn't picked cotton in September and went to school in September. Consequently, my mother graduated from Payne College in 1942, the first person in her family to graduate from college. And all of her, her brother, my Aunt Agnes and, and my Uncle Rufus, they all went to college. So there's something else that's strongly about that. When you take the education of African-American, of, of formerly enslaved Africans, was the fact that their education, certainly there were great strides in education after the Civil War and in amazing work that was done after the Civil War under the Reconstruction from 1865 to 1877. It was those legislators, those formerly enslaved Africans who brought public education to the South, not only for themselves, but also for poor whites as well. There had not been public education in the South. So all that all these dynamics fit into a system a reju- that, that ended up in the decision-placed in 1896, separate but equal, which was, was the law of the land in the South, and into some sort of de-, de facto segregation also happened in the North, as well as people migrated to cities like Chicago for job, formative work, migrating other places around the Midwest, and out of the South, they also also were dealing with the issue of de facto segregation. So they had de jure segregation under Plessy versus Ferguson until you have Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 and virtually uh, the beginning of the modern civil rights movement. So all these things were revealed to my parents with my mother's education and certainly for her, for the sacrifices made by my grandmother And my grandfather were enormous, but they knew they had a vision of the future for their child and they were able to provide for their child. Not everyone had that opportunity. You know, my grandmother's mother and the family's livelihood was supplemented by the fact that she was a midwife. So and had been a midwife and uh, a midwife who they still talk about in Jefferson County. And she was a great midwife. She was an exceptional midwife. And she was able to make money, continue to feed the family, while at the same time, a, a not a great deal of money, because she, she delivered the babies of poor African-Americans and poor whites in that community as well. So, I mean, all these are kind of things that, in sense, that, that, that kind of, like, shift, shake my kind of thoughts toward the importance of education, and and how we have to, to, the one thing that certainly is is a part of my own work as a citizen is around how do we begin to rescue the public school system and around the country, and how do we begin this process, reversing this, this privatization of public education and education itself that is happening which is exclusive, which has excluded people who have experienced exclusion. And their, their movements for meritocracy have been movements of meritocracy. We saw that at a certain point in this country's history, but these people, people have been affected by it and continue to be affected by it. All you had to do is look at, not, let's not look at the test scores, because test scores are about accountability. They're not about teaching. You know, let's look at the kids and the children. Who don't finish school, and don't graduate, it's a small number of those who don't graduate from, from high school and more might move on to college. There was a big, enormous emphasis of the on that, and that was a part of the of kind of a national agenda during and post the civil rights movement. But certainly, whatever, however we want to look at it, whatever analysis or whatever data we want to cover up, it certainly has been. There's been less emphasis on that, even though there have been programs, initiations to place more uh, emphasis on it. But the problem with this, this country is that most countries have a national education plan. This country doesn't have a national education plan. Most countries have a, not, not, not one that is based upon uh, states' rights or based on a, a, a state's exceptionalism within the construct of the union and everything else, but a national education plan. It needs to have that. And certainly the group of, of educators that I've been around have been fighting for that and struggling for that whole idea of a national education plan for all Americans. You know, as education is a pillar for democracy, then certainly a, a national education plan is warranted and necessary.
0: I love it. You know, it, it made me more interested. I think it's, I think it's so great. You know, you've got this platform. There's so many of us who've loved your movies over all these years. And you've got such passion about it that it makes it—it's—it's it's like a great kind of insider to to get more interested in it. You know, I'd be interested in, in talking about that. You know, I think so many people know you from Lethal Weapon or something like that. But you were acting almost ten years before that, weren't you? Like BJ and the Bear and Escape from Alcatraz. Well,
1: I think what happened Christy to Weapon happened in 1986, mm-hmm. the year my 40th birthday. I am by the time. I had decided to work become an actor and on, on my 30th birthday. I had virtually began on my journey doing local community theater. That's where I began. I didn't start doing film. I always had this idea that I would do the community theater. And that was basically 1976. You know, that's the 44 years ago. And so that's when I began. So I'm getting the whole process during that year. And I still, I did not leave my, my job as a city employee now to the end of 1977. I left my job officially the first of of January 1978. So this idea a year and a half before, just around my 30th birthday, I decided that maybe my life is changing. So I began to do the kind of work. I was in a night acting class, scene study class, and there are different other things that I've tried to do that argumented, you know, that not argumented, but that certainly began to provide me the kind of, at least of work methodology t- toward being an actor. You have, to, you have to study to be an actor. You just don't think jump on the stage. You have to find different ways to understand acting and the pr- process, a process that you can read about it in books like Udo Holden's Respect to Actors or Stanislavski or many other people who have been theoreticians on acting. And then then see how, how you're able to internalize those things and reach and find ways in which you organically allow that process to infiltrate your mind and body and stuff like that. How do you become relaxed? How do you find relaxation? And like, The key to relaxation is breathing. How do you find ways of controlling your body and movement in your body and using your body as an instrument? You use your body as an instrument. Each character, each, in each storyline, the character's body's language is, you learn that on stage, is determined by so many different things, you know, his status in life. You know, if, if I'm playing Macbeth, which I've done, if I'm playing Macbeth, he's, he's not the same. He has a different body language than of Zach and the blood knotted, Fugard. They're two different ways. So the language, body, all those things become ways in which you try to find, you're finding the kind of ways in which you become, uh, in, you ingratiate yourself in the process itself. I'm learning the craft of acting. Movement. Movement was, since I'm 3 I've always felt, I'm um, comfortable in my body. So movement was a key component for me. Dance movement. I took dance movement. You know, I, I did a small role in a in a community play called No Place to Be Somebody, Charles Godone, a uh, wonderful play. Had a life on, uh, in New York on Broadway and everything else, No Place to Be Somebody. And I chose to do the role as the, the short order waiter. Or, or in, in a, a small in a small shop who was taking ballet. So I took ballet lessons in order to be comfortable in the state. So I learned something else about my body and learned something else about my whole being, just taking ballet lessons.
0: That's so interesting. You know,
1: I, I'm interested, you know. But that's the part of the process of opening your up to something new. It, you're young, you're excited about it, and you're challenging yourself. You know, learning an accent, like the South African accent that I've developed. A lot of people thought, which is where it became, because in my commitment to learn that accent, to listen and learn the accent and use the accent, a lot of people thought when I was on stage that I was actually South African. (laughs) And which production did you learn that for first? The Blood Now. Okay. And the Blood Now, I had gone the first year, the American Conservatory of Theater had what they called an Actors Workshop, a Black Actors Workshop. It was around their commitment to affirmative action. It took 30 students. And then after that first year, a friend of mine, who I've known for a long time, this was 17 years old, since we we're hippies together, from San Francisco, and we started to work on something that summer. We I mean, they started working on it, it just scenes, monologues, because the blood might have wonderful monologues. And then we decided, well, let's, let's let's put together scenes. And then we find ourselves. well, let's do the whole play. So I found someone who loved the play. They knew the play and was able to express the play and in, in terminology that, that helped us both realize that. And we ended up doing the play. We ended up building the set. And we ended up getting someone to do wardrobe. We ended up putting together a soundtrack for the play and everything else. And it was the two of us on a three-act play with two of us ended up on stage with a small audience of friends and willing Associates for four hours on three acts. After I did that play, I knew this is where I was going. Yeah. I gained so much out of that. And I knew, I knew what writer I was going to make that journey with. And I made it with Fugard from there, from Blood Knot to Seasway Bonsias there.
0: At the Eureka
1: Theater in San Francisco, from Seasway Bonsias there to the island in LA at the Matrix Theater, and from, from the island to on Broadway with the Blood Knight in seventy nine eighty, and then on Broadway. So I think all those things were lessened as the theater was essential. And I was fortunate at the time. I spent relatively brief time in New York, when I came back to do Master Hair on the Board Rep, where the author was directing, with James Mokai and Lonnie Price. And I came back there to do that. And then I would like to film, you know, places, places in the heart in 1983.
0: Yeah. You know, I was a little bit younger. So when I was growing up, you know, I would see you in things like Angels in the Outfield. And then my mom let me watch Witness with her once and later Shooter. And, and I went, it wasn't until later that I went back and saw the Lethal Weapons when I was a little older. And I'm interested, you know, that, that series making hundreds of millions of dollars over the years and. And just really holding a place kind of in the iconic, you know, it, there's such iconic films that people remember so well. I'm interested in what you feel like you learned doing that film series. Well, I have come out of, I mean,
1: where do you get? I go from Places in the Heart to Witness. I go from Witness to Silverado. I go from Silverado directly to Color Purple. And Color Purple. And then it happens in 85. Then contacted to come and meet with Mel for a new series, that really, it defines my career in a lot of ways, you know? I, I think there's some of the determinants for such a series, bringing a Black and a white, a stable Black family and a, and a white renegade. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Mean, and certainly certainly you, had, you had advantages before that, because Michelle of the stable Black professional family. Mm-hmm. Was one of the first. She wasn't, I mean, a nurse as, as Julia was, played by Diana. She was a nurse, but she had a professional family that had middle class aspirations and Cosby Show. And uh, at that moment, I think it was a perfect uh, a moment for to Bring a, a Buddy Cop story where the African American has a family, and stability of a family, and all the other things. The family, I it, it was a great moment. In, in contextualizing the history of of film in this country and often the kind of limited role that African Americans have in film, outside of if it's an all black film as we talked about during the black exploitation film period and whatever we wanted to But I I thought it was I thought it was in, important, I think, to some degree, put a number of degrees ways. It played a role and and not about me as, as as the, you know, in, in its own way, but not to the magnitude, but in its own way, as the Black Panther play. Mm. You know, in terms of clearly this mythical kingdom. In fact, in real history, there, there were kingdoms that would be there were African kingdoms, certainly a kingdom that would challenge our perception of Africa in the 15th century or the 14th century or during the period. Of the Ottoman Empire and all that been, and the challenge that you know people forget that in the sixth century, the Moors, northern Africans, occupied Spain for like seven hundred years. Moors came up and occupied Spain.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, in fact, the Rock of Gibraltar is named after Moors general. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So Tariq, the Moors general, led the army and conquering Spain. We don't know. But you look at the very interesting, where everything wrote a blur for it forward, um, a very interesting book by his wonderful historian I love. His name is Gerald Horn, and it is The Dawning of the it, it It said, the roots of slavery, white supremacy, settler colonialism, and capitalism in the long 16th century. So that was the 16th century after... After long century, 16th century, 1492 on that next hundred years. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting book. Uh, what 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 are, what what were the prevailing internal politics in Europe, Africa, with increased navigational skills, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that brought about the Columbus boys? But the Chinese had been to the New World in the 11th century. <laughs> Chinese had already and made, made the vessels that they traveled in made, made the, the Nina, the Pina, the Santa Marina look like tugboats. <laughs> and then that's something we don't know. We think about the, the first adventures in the world. We don't know that Native people came together around North America in the 11th century and began to devise ways in which they were able to live in this bountiful, resource-bountiful place together. We don't know that history.
0: Yeah, it does seem fascinating to think about the Iroquois and the Algonquin and the Seneca and, and those Five nations stuff. If we had had a written history to see what that was like, you know. Yeah, well, they, they they contributed to the, the kind of ideas around the Constitution,
1: the whole ideas around the Constitution. These we've always, this is the first thing we learned when I was in his, when I was in class in history, is that the contributions that First Nations made in their own own governance. To our own ideas around governance, platforms around governance. I don't know if they still teach that in elementary school, in junior high school, in high school. But yeah, that was one of the things that you learned. I mean, you don't. We don't even learn that Mexico abolished slavery after this war of independence against Spain in 1829. We don't know that. Yeah, we don't know that. Over you know, over 30 years, more than 30 years after, before the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah, or the end of the Civil War. We don't know that.
0: You know, thinking about the way you describe that that role, the stable black family. Did you have? And I know we're I know we're closing in on time here, so I want to be respectful of your time. Maybe this can be our final question. Did you feel like you had opportunities for mentoring, especially other African American actors, after that was just such a huge success? And or or what was the reaction afterwards? Well, I think on the one hand, there's a general sense. And you can go back on the way
1: community expression, using community expression as leverage or the kind of indi- indicator. Whenever there's been a moment where there have been levels of recalculating the African-American experience than the one that film has shown, there's always been that kind of space, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you take the singular image of Sidney Poitier walking across a screen, just the image of it. There's before Sydney and then there's after <laughs> I mean, Sydney. You know? No, I'm so serious. That's not true. You know, I'm, I'm so so true. Any, of, any of us come out of that extraordinary moment when Sydney walked across the stage? I think Dinah Carroll was the person. Dinah Carroll said he moved like a panther. He didn't shuffle or, or scratch his head, he moved across there. He was so elegant. You I know, mean, we found though, there, those characters in Black films, you know, films like independently of Black cin- cinema. But you didn't find those images normally in, in popular Hollywood films. You know, they're either, you know, they're either a comical or they're either maids so or they're the history of African-American film. You know, where did you get the idea from cowboys from? If you look at co- black people in the West, you see they place their role on any role that they play on a cattle drive. A cattle drive is something symbolic of post-Civil War and the taming of the West getting the expansionism that takes place post civil war in this country. Because for five years you couldn't do anything. Why you couldn't do anything? Because you had a war going on. So all these who gathered the stray cattle together? Who knew more about horses and everything else? And on any trail drive, often two or three of those men on the tail drive were African American. But you'll never see that in a John Wayne movie. Oh they they were actually drove the cattle. They wanted to cook as the actor Oscar Lee Brown played and wouldn't mm-hmm. cook Oscar Lee Brown played on a John Wayne movie as the cook he was a part of the trail ride itself you never see those images you know the whole idea of, about the, the experience of the American West which is the shape of this I, I, this country's idea of its exceptionalism its independence and its taming the wilderness that's, that's what the Western represents but Black people were part of that as well, but they never, they never projected in that. You know, all the fact that they were, Black Seminole Indians were part of the Trail of Tears and since March of people from Florida to the Oklahoma Territory, the Black the Seminole Indians who would escape slavery, And that there were three Seminole Indian wars that started about 1816 and in which included Andrew Jackson, Colonel Dave after Dave Colony, and another form of a president. And they never won those wars, and that because of the collaboration between black Seminole Indians and Seminole Indians. You know, the, the, the Florida swamps were, were symbolic, you know, were connected to that, connected to Florida. the Florida sw- swamps were similar to the places where Africans inhabited, in Africa, you know. So all that kind of history, if someone had this new project that Trump has attacked Called the 1619 Project, the United States is a colonial settlement. Period. That's what it is, and we don't accept that they didn't originate. you know those Americans, quote unquote, didn't originate here? The Native people that
0: occupied it 15,000 years before they came here. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about, like all really the different think about that. Yeah, all yeah. the different ways that we shape history, and like it is so often what we see. Right. The visual aspect of it. And that's what's to me is so interesting about film specifically to have for people to see something different and to have that emotional experience around it, you know, is is so it can it can open up a world, you know, that people maybe don't have access to otherwise. What are the the
1: two longest, two longest sustained cultures in the world? I don't know. What are they? China, right? Mm-hmm. Five thousand years, three thousand however you want to count it—and in and India, mm. continuous cultures, mm-hmm. even though they both were "quote unquote" some sort of se- semi-colonial situation with the, with Britain, and, and certainly China was a different situation because China fought and took took his own <laughs> took to the t- t- Chinese. I look at Chinese. Chinese have 5,000, 3,000, whatever, history, c- continuous history. They can tell you what philosophically they thought about 2,000 years ago and how they thought and what it would be settled, because they have a continuous history of that. India has the same continuous history. but India comes out as it, part of the Persian culture as well. You know, all these other histories, you know, I mean, Iraq is not just not belong to the Iraqi people. Iraq is the birthplace of modern farming 15,000 years ago. is right on the Euphrates. Where were the first major civilizations? On the, on, on the, Euphrates. Yeah, the, the, the Euphrates. The Euphrates and the,
0: the Tigris there, that the, the valley, tigress, valley
1: in between? The, you know, all those, let's come. Those are people who settled that. And then you have the, the Nile. You have Egypt. All through the Egypt, yeah. You know, all those kind of religious decisions. So they, to listen, and, and all of them in some sense have been amused or undermined by uh, quote, white colonization at some point. Effective of, you know, as Egypt was a part of the colonial, British is colonial, what was it say that the sun never sets on the British Empire? All those kind of ways of listening, but it just their whole history of the, who they are. You know, a great deal of fundamentalism is certainly and not so much, I believe, not so much anti-European as opposed to to drawing on your own historic cultural and historic contributions. You know, Euphrates was important and to, to human civilization. That, as I said, it didn't just belong to the Iraqi people. It belongs to human, humanity. Everything that created empire after empire, empire. Chinese too. What what were were using rocks or what? Stones. Rocks, stones, and everything else. Somebody discovered what? Gunpowder. Arrow, stones, everything else. A, who the ones who created gunpowder? Chinese. Yeah. You know, That's a historic fact. But wait a minute. I mean, this is this religion comes out of a period that happened and then period a period in human history that was unlike any period before. Imagine this. Imagine your warriors. Here you are, at the end of the Civil War in 1865. In simply 80 years, you invent and drop the most destructive instrument in human history, in the atomic bomb, 80 years after the end of the Civil War. You take the 80 years before the Civil War. What is that? <laughs> and 80 years before that, 18, 80 years before 17, uh... the Civil War, 1785. Yeah, yeah, you know, we're fighting over trying to figure out what the how you're going to govern. Yeah, eighty eight years before, then you have a civil war, which was in some sense in, inevitable because of the contradictions that were created with slavery and so. You know, it informs whatever we do today. What's called the the whole idea of the the college was said to college when you know you don't win the public the popular vote, but you win the
0: Electoral college?
1: T- electoral college. Oh, well, I did. Electoral college is because of the depopulation of whites in the South, because the large number of whites in the South, I mean, large, the, the, the enormous population of slaves in the South. You know, there's the, the old slavery and the new slave. And the new slavery happened right after, as Edward White in this book has never been told, Edward Baptist. The new slavery happens after the ratification of the Constitution.
0: You know, that makes me think of a question because it's been interesting as I've gotten older and like I've been interested in different histories and like seeing how like Stoic philosophy is actually very similar to stuff that the Samurais were studying and writing in the 1500s with no connection, you know?
1: With philosophy, what?
0: Like some of the Stoic philosophy and some of the things that the Spartans taught were actually, you can find very similar concepts in like medieval Japan in some of their writings that have been translated. And so it's fascinating for me to see the human condition and how people can learn similar lessons with no contact to each other. But, but my next question is, when you look at the future, what makes you optimistic? Well, here's what the thing about it. Well, we've all been connected because
1: we come from a central place. It's a migration. Mm. Sure it's the migration. You know, Eve migrated from the metaphoric. Eve migrated from Central Africa. She came to the Dead Sea area. I did something for Discovery Channel years ago, 20 years ago, I think, 20 years ago, going and call the Real Eve for the Discovery Channel. And through mitochondrial my, my DNA, they trace the journey of E. And so, I mean, we see it all the time. You know, we, we see people find that they chart their genome. Yeah, um, that's fascinating stuff, isn't this. it? And, you know, I'm a descendant of 17,000 years in here. My children go back 17,000 years and go back, back. You see, the Real Eve. From the, the film, they're tracing mitochondrial the, the DNA. And as the great George Worth says, you know, we're all African. You know, we can come, <laughs> come through that. We call like Africa. And if she journeys through that to South Asia, there's a break off in that journey. And they go to New Zealand and, and Australia. That's why Aboriginal people say, we've been here like 60,000 years or whatever. Their cosmology goes back long before that, you know. But then you, you're up through Southeast Asia, crossing the Bering Straits, and the North American during the Ice Age. They go down to South America. And then you have, you have the great Inca Empire, the Aztec Empires, all these empires that are in warmer cl- climates. They come back, First Nation people come back here 15,000 years later. So they're the, they're the last of this migration. So, of course, you bring all these different kinds of elements. As you move through the, this migration period. And so, do we all find this connectivity of ex- movement or this migration that happened? This migration of not traveling often by, um, um, by boats, maybe of some sort, of, so it might, might seaworthy. Find it all there. There's a different reason why the what's the name is where it is, where the Bering Straits, where it is, there was, where you cross there coming into the next territory. That's the, I would just say, evolutionary journey.
0: Yeah, I just, yeah. by the way, I just found it on Amazon. If people want to watch the, that Discovery Channel show, they can, they can get it on Amazon. You can get everything on Amazon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you get everything you want to do on Amazon. Well, so, maybe, I, I love it. Maybe we can end with this, with this last question, though. Thinking about all you've learned and all you've seen, what, what makes you optimistic?
1: It's just indomitable spirit that human beings have. And and the possibilities are always there. Because what we have different than any other species is this incredible brain that's been able to control nature, that's been able to make choices that can change the trajectory of human development and growth and everything else. And everything has happened over this 65,000-year journey or whatever it is. And that we, we have the possibility to have a conversation, a dialogue, create a narrative. Um, and we, we have that possibility. We won't become extinct, extinct, quote unquote, if we if that happens without at least presenting the possibility that a different world is possible. And you no, know, we don't, because you keep thinking about it. You think what the kind of relationship that correspond to bringing out not not the worst in us, you know, but the best in us. You know sometimes we don't get about you know some of the mentality around war is not the same when you're protecting your little village in Lebo. you go to Lebo in the south of France, they have a catapult right outside. it's just not something it's it's warning advancing invaders that we're gonna put these rocks in the <laughs> we're gonna throw them at you, and then oh, you just added fire to it, so we're gonna burn some of you and and then we're going to. Crush some of you, and the ones we don't finish off, we're going to uh, we're going to <laughs> shoot you without our arrows and snows and arrows of vent. All this is before which That was actually to set up. It was before gunpowder. Gunpowder wasn't existed didn't exist in a, in a period, you know. And which and they found way in which they defended themselves. And you could you could. There was a point in time you could leave your village and within a mile radius. And not show up again because you get lost and know how to get. Yeah. So, you was always kind of saying the village, the whole idea of the village and people navigating their life through the village and, and finding a way in which they live and, and communicate with each other and, and resolve their issue within the village. You know in so, yeah, a sense, oh, yeah, you can leave, but that village was protected by invaders who wanted to maybe take what you have by a catapult to yeah. the outside. You know, if men had to, several men would have to get up and, and they became the, the catapult specialists, you know, they became the stone, <laughs> throw the rocks, boom, They would rough. Then they'd say, oh, let's add fire, throw the fire. So people could hear the fire coming down on them. See, the, I just want to go to,
0: the, my inner 15 year old boy just wants to go to practice school for, for catapult school.
1: So I think
0: we've come from different places to where we come now. So what what habit do you think all of us who want, you know, the thing that makes you optimistic, the the indomitable spirit, this this creativity, what what can we all be practicing on a day as a daily habit to be better at that? If you want to quote the minister of love,
1: Martin Luther King, love Mm. has to be what comes out of love, empathy, understanding compassion
0: so interesting it's so easy to get like especially for ambitious people i think it's so easy for me to focus on my goals and my success and my agenda but it's funny what happens when i slow down and care about people around me right i mean
1: i think love
0: doesn't in
1: some sense eradicate that other sense of individual needs individual desires the individual accomplishment but the accomplishments that we find is individual's a grounded in a context that frames whom we are as a community. It's a, the old African equivalents, it takes a village to raise a child.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, listen, you've been so generous with your time here today. If people were going right. to donate to one of these charities on education or anything like this, who would you suggest we support? If, if I'm saying, I'd say the Algebra Project is one, multiple project, and it's either the Algebra
1: Project, Inc.
0: Yeah, thanks again for making all this time for us.
1: Take care. Okay.